This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined today by myself, Sam, and Amber, co-founder and CEO of Clover, and Rob, who's Director of Programs at Finos. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Perhaps we we can start with just a little bit of demystification, because I'm already, as you can tell, a little bit confused as to who's doing what and what you're doing in London. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your careers to date, what you're doing now, and then we'll talk about why you're in London? Sure. So my name is Amber Balde. I'm co-founder and CEO of Clover. And that's a, a startup that began just six months ago at this point. It's been a very fast six months. Um, before that, I was at JP Morgan and I was leading their blockchain program, although I was there for several years before that as well, working on some other projects. So I had been introduced to Finos, which Rob can talk about a little bit, you know, before it was even Finos, back when it was the Symphony Foundation. And even before that, when it was a Symphony chat platform that we were working on integrating into across various banking applications. So it's been a really long journey to get here. And what we're here for this week is to announce a decentralized ecosystem program within Finos that I I hope is going to be wildly and wonderfully received. Super. And Rob? So thank you. It's great to be here in London. I'm the director of programs at Finos. And maybe just a little bit of background on what Finos is. So Finos is the FinTech Open Source Foundation. And as Amber alluded to, we grew out of the Symphony Software Foundation, which itself grew out of Symphony, the fintech startup that some of your listeners may be familiar with. And on April 24th of this year, we became an independent foundation that is focused not only on open source projects built on the Symphony stack, but really any form of open source project in the overall financial services sector. Our members, we have about 20 platinum members, about 30, 35 members overall. And most of them come from the capital market space, especially the bulge bracket. But we also have some of the leading information and data providers in financial services, as well as some of the technology companies that are doing a lot of work in financial services. Your membership roster is is pretty impressive from GitHub to Deutsche Bank. You've kind of got everyone involved. You mentioned Symphony, one of the fintech industry's earlier and, and greatest success stories. I know Goldman played a big part in that journey. We were introduced by Paul Walker, who's senior advisor, friend, global advisory council member, and still today has the most popular podcast we've had on this this series. Do you maybe want to explain a little bit about how you know Paul? Yeah, so Paul and I know each other through a strange set of circumstances that is not specific to financial services. A passion of mine is expanding computer science education in New York City. And Paul and I were both invited several years ago to an event at the NASDAQ to commemorate some of the work that both Paul and I do around computer science education. I just introduced myself. We hit it off. We uh, developed a friendship. And uh, we actually started to host some dinners around Brooklyn, where we brought together both of us and Amber. We all live in Brooklyn. And so we, we started to host some dinners to bring different types of folks together and sort of some networking dinners. And just a friendship grew, and he introduced me to the Symphony Software Foundation, and that's the rest of it. I love that. From Brooklyn dinners to Symphony success stories, and now to Canary Wharf to our podcasting yes, it's, studio. Yes, it's wonderful. So, so all thanks to Paul. Awesome. Paul Walker, the man, the myth, the legend. Yes. Amber, 
you've had a very decorated career. I'm surprised to hear that you're only six months into the Clover journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that six months so far? It was a little bit like being, you know, shot out of uh, one of those cannons at the circus over the pit of alligators. You know, it was, um, mm-hmm. it was uh, a lot very, very quickly. It's been a fantastic experience and an amazing time right now in the public cryptocurrency space, but also the enterprise blockchain space and where I spend more and more time, which is what we would consider uh, Web3 or the decentralized web kind of space. All those things are slightly different and no one really knows the difference between them. <laughs> so that's okay if you don't know the difference between them. But, you know, one of the things that that I've been passionate about is not isolating each of them in their own silos. So whereas a lot of people might think of public cryptocurrency as the realm of hackers and 'er ne'er-do-wells, and they might think of business blockchain as a slow database, and they might think of the Web3 or the decentralized web as as something that we tried in 2009 that didn't quite work the first time around with the semantic web, you know, there's actually a ripe opportunity right now for these things to come back together and augment each other in ways that they could not previously. We're at a very interesting point where people are interested in challenging some of the technical and financial incumbents in brand new ways that could be disruptive to industry, but also huge opportunities to businesses that get ahead of the challenges. I love the pit of alligators. Sorry, wrong <laughs> thing to pick up from from that, that that section, but the pit of alligators, I think some entrepreneurs feel like they landed in the pit of alligators. So <laughs> you've at least got that success notched up. And Web 3.0, that, that's an interesting concept. At Motive Partners, we're very fortunate to have the support of Rosemary Leith and Sir Tim Berners-Lee of the World Wide Web Foundation. And this, I know, is is very high on their agenda, particularly given Web Summit recently and the, and the 50-50 contract. Yep, we presented there at Web Summit. Awesome. And what's, what's your takeaway on the 50-50 contract between governments, businesses and citizens? 50% for each of those would be 150%. <laughs> Three principles for each. I think the 50-50 part, and I wasn't actually at Web Summit, but the 50-50 part was we're about to tip over 50% of the world on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And most of those people are bringing mobile devices, which is an interesting change in the way that technology is delivered. And the mobile experience has meant that a lot of people now develop mobile native applications first. And that's been wonderful for accessibility to people that don't have a home desktop computer. But it's also meant a loss in accessibility of open web standards, things like XMPP that used to let you interoperate chat clients, or a lot of people might have been familiar with Google Reader and the RSS feeder that let you get all your news into any feed reader of your choice for a long time. We've seen those kind of things decline as people moved into the walled gardens and kind of echo chambers of the Google, Facebook, and Twitter kind of ecosystems, which lend themselves to those mobile apps. So it's been somewhat ironic that as more people come online, it's not fostering the same kind of open inclusion and broad democratization of knowledge that we were expecting it to. You talk about open inclusion and Financial services is going through such a cool moment. My personal view is we're just one minute past midnight. We've got open banking, which is slowly starting to permeate into into the customer ecosystem. You used to work at a bank. You don't look like you worked at a bank, which, by the way, is a massive compliment. I still do, but it was a long time ago. What do you guys see the roles of the incumbents being in a future financial services ecosystem? I think that the role of financial institutions is becoming only more important. 
I mean, what's really interesting about the tokenized crypto asset markets is that you can essentially tokenize anything. And people are interested initially in these kind of uh, free-floating assets like Bitcoin and Ether, which don't rely on any sort of central intermediaries and which you can hold under your mattress like cash, digital cash, if you wanted to. But beyond that, there's a big push to tokenize lots of other stuff like fractional ownership in a house or your mortgage payments relating to that house and to create other kind of cash flows off of those or fine art or diamonds or supply chains. And so it turns out that the amount of assets that can be custodied digitally is actually exploding. So there's a huge new role for settling assets versus cash representations, whether those are in fiat or in new digital representations. That is a huge new business opportunity. Not to mention that all of this stuff requires very complex security controls, private keys. So private key management. It's kind of like managing your password, but more like if your password were a nuclear bomb that if you lost it, your entire financial life would blow up if you didn't have it anymore. You know, I love my parents. I don't know that I trust them with all of their passwords all the time. So I certainly don't want them to be in charge of their own private keys for their insurance policies, say, right? So it's important that people have the agency to be able to hold these things themselves, but we need to provide usable solutions for everyone else out there, you know, lest they get themselves into trouble. And that's a, it's a huge opportunity for custody of brand new types of assets for existing financial incumbents. I love that. There's a nuclear fallout instead of a forgot password button. That's that's terrifying. When you've got a memory like mine, I'm always always pressing that button. Rob? Yeah, so I was enjoying the podcast you did recently with Natalie Cena from Innovate Finance. And I think you would ask the question to her about where we are in terms of the relationship of the large banks versus the startups. And there was a conversation that ensued about the fact that the the desire to simply just disrupt and destroy the banks, and maybe we've moved past that era. And certainly we're seeing that. And I think that's another sort of rationale for why this new program, we're putting it together. One of the biggest questions we get at Finos and, and have always gotten going back to when we were the Symphony Software Foundation was, don't you have a crypto program? You're the FinTech Open Source Foundation. Why don't you have a crypto program? Why don't you have a decentralized program? Why don't you have a blockchain program? And the answer is quite simply because that's kind of the area of the financial services world that needs the least support in terms of open source because it is by definition an open source project. But it's also a proof point that the large institutions sort of by necessity have to be paying attention to what's coming out of the young startup world as well as a developer anywhere in the world. But sort of the reverse of that is that any young fintech is going to want to probably either serve, partner with, be acquired by, or compete with a large bank. And so it's also in their interest to understand what is happening at, at the banks. And for us, we want to create a, a platform and a forum where the small fintechs can, can work and collaborate on open source projects with Goldman Sachs, with JP Morgan, with Morgan Stanley, with Deutsche Bank. Thanks. I'm looking through the list of questions I have here. And one of them is, how do you teach the value of decentralized systems to other people? Amber, I'm going to give that one to you first. And then there's a, a small follow-on question afterwards. People are familiar 
with something like Google Sheets, for example, where they want to see the same thing as their friends in real time. They want to organize their, their holiday addresses with a group of friends. They want to collaborate on one thing and not have to email around an Excel file anymore. And that works for most people, for most home situations, and for a lot of an increasing number of small businesses and startups. But what people are catching on to more and more is that as you do that, the intermediary that you've introduced, in this case, in this example, Google, acquires some legal access and legal rights to that information. And uh, they also can have ultimate control of what order things happened in. It probably doesn't matter if you're just ordering your, your holiday card address list, but if you're ordering financial transactions, it matters very much. And so being able to coordinate with people in a way where you don't necessarily have a third-party central intermediary isn't necessarily about trying to disrupt the way incumbent industries work so much as retaining agency and collaborating with your peers without having to abdicate that control to somebody else. So when people talk about distributed ledgers, that's what they're talking about. But when we talk about decentralized systems, I mean, we use one every day, DNS. Every time you type an address into a URL bar, uh, the DNS system is globally distributed. There's been fantastic work towards making that system more resilient and more immutable using the same technology that underpins blockchain technology, using Merkle trees and other kind of crypto. When I say crypto, it means cryptography. Route, by the way, but other kind of crypto principles. And they work very well, and people are using these things without even knowing them. So I think we have an opportunity to break apart the components that have sparked this hype cycle around blockchain and solve interesting problems like zero-knowledge proofs, for example. Zero-knowledge cryptography is a very cutting-edge area of research where people learn to compute things. Uh, we're learning to compute things with each other without having the inputs or potentially even the algorithms that are running exposed to any party and still get back an answer that is provably true. So if the three of us, for example, wanted to compare our salaries, but no one wanted to, we didn't want to disclose them to each other, right now the only way that we could solve that problem really is to get a fourth person in the room and we'd tell them. So being able to do that without that intermediary, again, is a new area of research that solves business problems. For example, a business problem you might solve with that in the financial industry could be opening of fraudulent accounts. Banks don't want to open fraudulent accounts. And the more information that they have about bad actors that have attempted to do so at other institutions, the more they can protect their own onboarding processes. But no one wants to share when they have opened a fraudulent account. It's bad reputationally. It can be bad legally. And so we don't want to dump all that information into one third-party database. I mean, we have Equifax. It hasn't worked out very well for anyone. It creates single points of failure security-wise. So you can use things like these sorts of zero-knowledge black box computations or autonomous private smart contracts. It gets kind of technical and fun, but to solve those problems in, in brand new ways that let people cooperate together across trust boundaries in brand new ways that are, are really going to accelerate what we can do business-wise. I always, I always thought that zero knowledge was a band. It's useful to know that, that, yeah, black boxes can create impartial intermediaries. Very, very cool. As you can tell, I'm the guy that still sends the Excel file around. I'm, uh, I'm not much of a technologist. That's okay. I'm the guy who still listens to the fish. Awesome. There we go. <laughs> I, I still listen to the Grateful Dead, and Rob and I have an ongoing dispute about yes. this. We're all in good company. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a technologist, nor do I profess to be, nor do I want to be. Uh, fortunately, I work with very smart people who are, like Paul, and our technology and delivery teams. But 
in the future, there is going to be a, a huge need to reskill people like me, people whose talent has become aged and is, is not necessarily up to scratch. What's your view on reskilling workforces? What do you think needs to happen? And what do you think the role of big business is in this respect? I think the the role of business is significant. The, the day that we're recording this is the day that the HQ2 announcement became official in New York City. Amber, my adopted hometown. There is already a lot of disagreement in New York, a lot of love for that announcement, a lot of hate for that announcement. But no matter what you think of it, it's it's actually unquestionably a reflection of investments that both the previous administration in New York, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and Mary de Blasio have made in both education in K-12 as well as continuing education in our SUNY and CUNY systems and, and other efforts. So I think I think we're going to continue to see almost a war amongst cities in terms of which cities can best prepare their workforces and best mm-hmm. retrain their workforces. Um, I think you see similar things happening, frankly, in London and the UK generally uh, in terms of looking at different efforts to retool. Specific to your question around businesses, I don't know that businesses are going to have any choice. When you hire somebody for a role, it's almost inevitable that they're going to need to do a skills refresh every two, three years. Things are just changing that fast. And when you look at uh, leading organizations, large organizations, I, I worked at Deloitte for a long time. You look at some of the stuff that they're doing. Some of those types of organizations are adopting a real learning first sort of approach towards retraining because the war for talent is a real one. And one of the things that talent does talent leaves when it doesn't feel like it's growing yeah talent also leaves when it doesn't feel like it's loved which is why i hope that brexit doesn't have too much of a fallout amber i think that this might be the first time that we see creative workers and white collar workers more threatened their positions being more threatened by ai as it becomes more predictive not just of what trades might be good for a portfolio but which companies might be good for a vc portfolio or what even new companies might might be best to start or even what art might be most beautiful. It's important, though, that as that progresses, as it inevitably will, that we continue to uh, have humans engaged in the ethical oversight of these systems. In that sense, I think people that have been in industry for a longer period of time are at a distinct advantage because they have seen these these cycles before and they've seen some of the the fallout when technology kind of does its own thing. It's kind of funny out in the uh, the public blockchain space. Sometimes you hear people say uh, how great it is that they don't have you know, 30 years of computer science learning because it means that's just greenfield for them to do brand new things, which is a wonderful way, I guess, to approach innovation. But, you know, we've learned a thing or two in those last kind of 30 years, and we don't need to repeat all the mistakes of the past. So it's important to have innovators just as much as it's important to continue to have overseers. And I think uh, for all the talk about smart contracts, automating lawyers out of a job, I feel that that is greatly overstated. I would just add, just to relate a little bit to my own personal story on this, because I, after I had decided I did not want to do consulting and be on planes anymore, I made a career change to become a chief technology officer. And after a couple of years of that, I realized that I needed to refresh my own skills and went back and took some computer science courses through the Harvard Extension School and realized, oh my gosh, like there's so much that I don't know. And I have to always be sort of taking agency for myself and my own skill set. It just drove home for me that if you're not always sort of 
keeping up to date and retraining yourself and looking for employers that are going to make that a priority, you're going to fall behind very quick. And I think that necessitates efforts on the private sector and necessitates efforts on the public sector and is necessitates, frankly, letting people know early in their career that they need to take their own agency and they need to own how their careers are going to develop and, and be asking those questions. Am I getting the skills I need to keep going, especially in finance, especially in technology, and all the more so in the intersection of finance and technology where things are changing so fast. And frankly, you're dealing with complicated topics, right? There's a lot of math. Yeah, it's very true. And a Harvard extension course will do that to you. Uh, I did one and uh, I realized how smart I wasn't, but it was a lot of fun. I realized how smart I wasn't, but how smart Amber is. There you go. <laughs> At least it worked for someone. I feel like I could have given two different answers to this question. Maybe I can give you another one and then you choose the one you like. Both of them. Uh, so as we see more opportunity to have free flow of capital globally in these kind of micro transactions, it opens up job opportunities for people globally. It makes the global job market more liquid. And it, that sounds like a great thing. But as we've seen the kind of flow um, from the sharing economy down to the gig economy, the people that are coming into the job market now are, are pretty terrified that uh, they're so quickly replaceable and so quickly you know, fungible with each other. And it, it makes it for a very uncertain and anxious kind of incoming job population. So sure, I worry about needing to retrain existing people, but the idea of the kind of comfort of the jobs that we have now is, is so vanishing that it's it's going to be a squeeze on both ends. You're absolutely right. I think the the day-to-day -day comfort that people have where they can hide in big organizations is is disappearing. And personally, I think that's probably a good thing. I think people will have to work hard to reskill. But I love the fact that you put the onus on people and on business and not on government. I think that's very, very important. In terms of government, UK, and I'm fiercely patriotic, so please give me some grace, has done a great job, I think. Not a perfect job, but a good job as supporting the financial services ecosystem from the FCA and Project Innovate to the Treasury and the FinTech Bridges Initiative to the City of London and the great work that the Lord Mayor does. And then everything that DIT does all around the world for us. What are some of the great US initiatives that I'm unaware of that you will be aware of? And yeah, how are people benefiting from? I'm going to give you props as well for being pretty far ahead in the UK on that. I think the FCA sandbox was a great idea and has already seen some good returns. I worked with uh, one project, uh, Navara, who was doing a project over there. It was a um, great experience. Also, I think the UK is ahead in that there are data portability laws here that are fostering open banking initiatives so that consumers can take their data with them. More needs to be done around that. I mean, just telling someone they can take their data doesn't mean that they can do anything useful with it. But in the US, we don't have any equivalent of either of those two things or GDPR. We're way behind on privacy regulation, on open banking standards, and on the ability to innovate with, with government. Where we are ahead, I think, we're having so many many conversations across different branches of government about how we're going to engage with the emerging uh, cryptocurrency ecosystem, that's really coming along. And maybe maybe it's some people would think it would be better if regulators didn't look at it um, and that no regulation is good regulation. But given the, the hot ICO markets, you know, the markets for new tokens and new projects in 2017 and how scammy some of them were, the U.S. regulators have been stepping in there. I had the pleasure of getting to testify to Congress a few months ago, the House Agricultural Committee, which for odd historic bureaucratic reasons has oversight over the Commodities Futures and Trading Commission, which therefore has oversight over Bitcoin being a commodity. So it's like the same people that cover pork bellies and soybeans that cover Bitcoin. So they're obviously 
equally informed. Um, but, you know, they're trying to figure out how to regulate this thing. And the exact same day, there was a similar conversation with the SEC. And the two conversations kind of went in wildly different directions. But the sheer amount of, of time and effort that's going into what is really still a very small space means that the U.S. is, is committed to getting it right and not seeing the possible brain drain and flight of startups out of the U.S. to places where um, you don't have to register as a money transmitter in 50 states. So they're working on it. I'm going to take a hard pass on what the U.S. federal government's doing really well right now and just say that my grandmother was born in Bradford and my great-grandfather was born in Kidderminster. So hats off to you all in the U.K. I, I would just add to that and say, I do think some of the things we historically we've done around establishing safe harbors have proven to be really valuable to startups in the past, and I expect more. But um, hats off to the UK. And if you guys stay in the EU, maybe I'll apply for a passport. You're pretty much English if uh, if you had people over here, even uh, over 100 years ago, we need as many friends as we can get. <laughs> very, very good. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Just a couple of more lighthearted questions on the way out. You guys are both from Brooklyn. If I'm moving to New York, why do I want to live in Brooklyn? Sell it to me. Do you have a baby? Because, no. oh, then I'm not exactly sure if you want to live in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Sell me a baby totally in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, I, uh, I moved to Brooklyn uh, when JP Morgan moved all of their tech and ops organization out there. There's a huge technology park that has thousands and thousands of workers. It's right next to NYU Poly, where they have a fantastic cybersecurity program. There's also um, innovation parks for startups with various kind of tax break programs. And all of that is around wonderful neighborhoods full of brownstones, which Rob can tell you all about. You know, but it was great. I needed an elevator for the baby stroller. So I will say that in all honesty. But uh, anywhere in New York is a great place to live. And there are lots of artists that live in Brooklyn because they're getting priced out of Manhattan and moving farther and farther out along the, the A train there. But uh, if you if you live in New York, I recommend that you move at least every 18 months, which you'll probably be forced to do anyway, so that you can get the full experience because every little neighborhood has a different personality. There you go. Working for the tourism board. <laughs> so I was working on a kind of a, a challenging problem one day, and I was sort of thinking through it. And I, I, I work in a neighborhood called the Gowanus, which is a kind of a, a rapidly transforming somewhat industrial neighborhood. And I walked down and I saw two different people who I knew from different parts of my life and then walked around the corner and our common friend Paul Walker was there buying a Cuban sandwich at a, a Cuban restaurant. It's, it's in many ways the strength of Brooklyn and frankly New York is the same strength I think you see in London, which is its neighborhoods, its walkability, its people on bikes, its people having chance encounters. And I think the biggest thing that Brooklyn has going for it, that New York has going for it, that London has going for it, is diversity. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I was at my son's PTO, parent-teacher organization meeting, and there were a number of people running. And I think six of the 10 people running were immigrants. What makes America great is immigration and the power of, of all these different peoples and viewpoints that all sort of work together and live together and collaborate together. I think that's really the heart of what makes Brooklyn great. Awesome. Great answers. When Trump moves to Brooklyn and ends up closing off almost every street and avenue, you guys are all welcome in London. I, I'm not going to do a sell right now, but we've got lots to offer too. Thank you, guys. Final question, always the same one, role models. You guys have both achieved so much already, and you both look incredibly young, so congratulations for not letting it get to you. But who have your role models and mentors been over the years? Maybe one from each. 
I've had the pleasure of working with a large number of pretty powerful men over the years in the banking industry, um, everywhere from hedge funds to smaller broker dealers to large banks to technical companies. And I've never had the opportunity of working for a woman, which is interesting. I've gotten to pick out little bits and pieces from each of them. They've all been fantastic mentors to me in various ways. Sometimes I, I get asked at kind of women's technical events, you know, how do you, how do you have gravitas? What is gravitas? mean, you know, and you you can't just try to try on someone else's personality, but rather every every different individual has these little bits and pieces that you take with you. Like for example, the first guy I ever worked for um, hung up on the trading desk after a relatively angry uh, call with counterparty and just pointed at me across the room and screamed, "Never apologize," <laughs> which was maybe a little bit aggressive, but uh, it stuck with me. Like there's just these little little things from each of them that I think it's entirely possible, even when there is a dearth of strong women around you to learn from. There are other wonderful things that we can learn from all of the people that have preceded us in this industry. Great answer. No one we've had before. So I've had some great mentors. So my friend, Tim Jones, who's the head of consultancy at KPMG now was a, a great mentor for me early in my career. Kathy Banco from Deloitte was a great, powerful, strong, inspiring woman, but probably the the one person who who stands out is my grandfather, who we don't know the whole history of it, but he worked on the Enigma and we don't know if he was actually at Bleshley Park. There were Americans who were there. I actually now think he may have worked on the Enigma immediately after World War II, but he then went on to be this incredibly proficient and prolific inventor, mechanical computing, did a ton of work with cryptography. So probably him, because I think his passion for engineering, he was a very quiet man, but this incredible engineer. If I had a role model, it's probably, I, I'm not like, I'm not 1% as smart as he was. He was just a, such a brilliant guy. So probably my grandfather. Well, it's a beautiful place to end. And one that resonates with me because my grandfather was my role model as well. So thank you very much indeed, guys. Rob, Amber, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I wish you all the best tomorrow and the day after. Yeah. And if, uh, I know this will probably come out afterward, but you know, I hope that we will have seen lots of folks at the Open Source Strategy Forum. And we've got lots of exciting programs and projects within Finno. So we, we hope you'll check them out. So we don't want to do one of those really bold forward-thinking statements like, it was a great success. Congratulations, guys. It was a great success. Everyone loved it. It was amazing. The standing ovation. It was fantastic. It was. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn immediately after this. People will think they missed it. Guys, thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry 
industry, the economy, motive partners or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.